Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. Today's story is kind of about the domino effect of evil. How one family ended up involved with a child abduction, a murder, a serial killer, and a story fit for a hero. Before we get started though, I want you to know that you can now get your own Beach House 34 merchandise. Now until December 23rd of 2022, you can receive 20% off the entire collection plus free shipping. So to get the deal, all you have to do is go to beachhouse34.com and click on the link at the top of the page, which will take you to the merchandise store. Now, a warning though, no surprise, right? A warning though, before we begin, uh, this episode does contain graphic descriptions of crimes, some of which include children. So listener discretion is strongly advised. Kenneth Parnell was born on September 26, 1931, in Texas. And he was born during the Great Depression and during a time that was called the Dust Bowl. Now, the Dust Bowl, it caused severe drought and damaged agriculture all over the Midwest. Uh, needless to say, it wasn't a great time if you had a family to feed. So when Kenneth was about six years old, his dad abandoned their family. And Kenneth's mom moved him, his half-brother, and his two half-sisters to Bakersfield, California, where she ran a boarding lodge. He grew into his teen years in Bakersfield, and during this time, he was in and out of juvenile custody uh, for car theft and arson. At the age of 18, he married 15-year-old Patsy Dorton. Two years later, Kenneth decided to go to an Army-Navy surplus store and purchased a sheriff's badge so that he could entice a young child to go with him. He then molested this young boy, and for this crime, he was sentenced to four years in prison. The reason that he gave for his crime? He said he did it because his wife was pregnant and he needed another outlet. About 10 years after Kenneth's first conviction, he was arrested for armed robbery in Utah. Now, we don't know much about what Kenneth was up to for a really long time, but we do know that at some point he moved to or near Merced, California. Now, this is a town that's close to Yosemite National Park. In December of 1972, Kenneth was working as a night auditor at the Yosemite Lodge with his co-worker, Edward Murphy. Now, Kenneth had been working on a plan for some time, kind of a secret plan. And Kenneth decided to put this plan into action and he asked Edward to help him. Now, not too far away, and this is just a few weeks before Christmas, seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was walking home from school in Merced, California. Stephen was the middle child out of five children in the Stainer family. He had three sisters and one older brother, Carrie, which will become important later on, who was 11 at the time. Stephen's dad was a maintenance mechanic who worked for a local cannery until he retired, and his mom cared for the children. 
As Stephen walked home from school that day, Kenneth and Edward drove by him and pulled over. They said that they were looking for donations for a church. Stephen agreed to show the men how to get to his house, which was only two blocks away, so that they could then ask his mom for a donation because he himself didn't have any money. So as Stephen got into the car, the two men drove off and they took Stephen to a cabin in Kathy's Valley. This is a small town just 22 miles northeast of Merced. Now what Stephen didn't know at the time was that the place that he was taken to and that where he would be held at for a while was only about 200 feet away from his grandfather's trailer in the same park. So Kenneth tells Stephen a story. He tells Stephen that his mom and dad couldn't afford him anymore and that a judge had actually given Kenneth legal custody of Stephen. He also gave him a new name, Dennis. The abuse of Stephen began that first night. Now, as you might imagine, Stephen's parents were absolutely distraught. They were beside themselves. They passed out leaflets. They put up billboards. They even consulted psychics to try and find out where their son was. Stephen's mom and dad sent their son's picture to every television station in the United States and Canada. Every public school district in the state also had a photo of Stephen. He was described as last seen wearing a tan coat, blue jeans, and a multicolored flower shirt with a zipper on the front. For two years, they followed tips. His parents even had to look at pictures of deceased children just in case one of them was Stephen. Nothing ever panned out. According to family friends, after Stephen was abducted, his mom was never the same. She didn't pay much attention to her other children. His dad would often be found going through Stephen's dresser and crying. It was also well known that Stephen was favored by his dad. In the book, I Know My First Name is Stephen by Mike Eccles, he writes that Stephen's dad once chewed out Carrie, Stephen's brother, for painting over the name Stephen that Stephen had scratched into the garage door. According to Stephen, quote, for the first 10 days, I cried and said I wanted to go home. I had hopes that my parents would want me back, but as time went on, they dimmed and dimmed. For seven years, Stephen was repeatedly sexually abused and beaten. He was threatened with whippings. He had his hair cut to change his looks. And Kenneth had fully convinced him that he had legally adopted him and changed his name, as mentioned, to now Dennis Parnell. During the time he was with Kenneth, Stephen lived in six Northern California towns and was required to call Kenneth dad. Believe it or not, Stephen did attend school and he was allowed to come and go as he pleased. Now, this is kind of interesting because you would think that with all of the notifications that had been sent to all of the school districts uh, within the state, that one of the teachers or helpers or anybody within the school would have noticed Stephen. But remember, you know, Kenneth changed his looks, but Honestly, how how much 
can you change on a child? You know, other than hair color or, you know, something to that effect. It's not like you can throw a beard on him or something. But um, yeah, that always kind of struck me as, you know, odd or nobody was paying any attention. Now, as soon as Kenneth felt that people were getting too close, he wound up just upping the whole family and leaving for another city. As Stephen got older and started to enter puberty, Kenneth's sexual interest in him grew less and less. So Kenneth wanted to find a new boy to, quote, build his family. What he did is he made Stephen help him in the kidnappings as an accomplice. But Stephen would always do something wrong and he would never, quote, get the child that Kenneth wanted. Eventually, Kenneth stopped using Stephen as an accomplice. Now, in interviews that would occur later, Stephen admitted that he purposefully didn't grab any kids for Kenneth. On February 14th of 1980, Stephen and Kenneth, at this point, are living in Manchester, California, when Kenneth abducts another child, five-year-old Timmy White, and the person who helped him happened to be a friend of Stephen's named Sean, who, I might add, was also a minor. Kenneth told Timmy the same exact story that he had told Stephen years earlier. His parents couldn't afford him and that he, Kenneth, was now Timmy's dad. When he brought Timmy into the house, he told Stephen that, hey, Stephen, you need a younger brother. And this is why he brought Timmy into the family. Timmy, as you might imagine, um, especially being so young, was incredibly scared and began to cry um, all the time. It reminded Stephen what his first few days with Kenneth were like. So what Stephen did is he came up with his own plan. Stephen would later say, quote, I didn't want Timmy to go through what I went through. So two weeks later, on March 1st of 1980, Stephen waited until Kenneth had gone to his night shift job at a local motel and, taking Timmy's hand, they hitchhiked 40 miles in complete darkness to the Ukiah, California Police Department. Now, Stephen, when they got there, Stephen at first did not want to tell the police who he was. All he wanted to do is to get Timmy to safety, and then he wanted to head out on his own and try and find his own family. But when an officer approached him, Stephen eventually revealed his entire story, how he was abducted, and what he had been going through over the past seven years. So the next morning, Kenneth was arrested. In the book by Mike Eccles, the one entitled I Know My First Name is Stephen, Kenneth says that he was molested at the age of 13 by a boarder in the rooming house that his mom had owned. Now, I don't know why he said this. Maybe he thought, hey, feel sorry for me. This happened to me. Therefore, I felt like I had to do it to other children. But uh, none, nonetheless, this is that was his statement. Now, when Stephen finally made it back to his own home, he was absolutely considered a hero. I mean, he had taken Timmy, this five-year-old who had been abducted, and rescued him from what was sure to be a completely devastating life. According to Stephen, quote, I returned almost a grown man 
and yet my parents still saw me as their seven-year-old boy. Now, Stephen's mom, she said, hey, she had never given up hope. As I mentioned before, Stephen, he was the middle child out of five, out of five children. And every Christmas, uh, Stephen's mom had set out the present that she wanted to give Stephen when Stephen was seven. Uh, it was a big gym doll wrapped in red and green paper. Now, uh, just kind of a side note, a big gym doll was all the rage in the early 70s. It was kind of an action figure that was inspired by G.I. Joe. Um, Each big gym doll had this push button on the back that would make the character do karate chop actions. Now, Steven's older brother, Carrie, actually heard the news about his brother coming home on the radio as he was coming back from a camping trip with his friends. Carrie later told reporters that, quote, he almost drove his car into the Merced River because he was so excited. According to Stephen's parents um, and Carrie's parents, Carrie was quiet and easygoing as well as an excellent student. Stephen, on the other hand, he was the complete opposite of Carrie. And according to uh, Stephen's parents, Stephen had, quote, never met a stranger which his mom then later said, well, maybe that's how the kidnapping happened. Carrie, however, at the age of three, had been diagnosed with a impulse control disorder. And this particular disorder causes someone to pull out their hair, their eyelashes, or their eyebrows. Now, they took him into the doctor. He was fully diagnosed as having this this, uh, disorder. And he was put on medication, but his parents felt that it turned him into a different child. So they took him off the medication. So what Carrie would then do is he would then wear hats all the time to hide the bald spots that he had created from pulling out his hair. Now, Stephen, upon returning home, he moved back into the bedroom that he had previously shared with his brother. While Carrie was excited at first to have his brother home, it soon became a little overwhelming because nearly overnight, Stephen became a celebrity and many things had changed. Newspapers and television uh, coverage and people from all over, they wanted to talk with Stephen. There was even a book written about his ordeal and a made-for-TV miniseries came out about it as well. Unfortunately, during the seven years that Stephen was in captivity, what Kenneth had done is he had introduced him to drugs and alcohol in addition to, you know, constantly sexually abusing him. And when Stephen got back, he drank and he smoked marijuana on a regular basis. He even coerced his sisters to smoke cigarettes with him. He would rarely, however, speak about the time that he was with Kenneth. Uh, but when he did talk, he he spoke with his friends. So he did speak about it, but just mainly with not his parents and, and others that were close with him. Carrie, on the other hand, um, spoke to one writer who had spent uh, quite a bit of time with the family. And Carrie had told this writer that his brother's head was, quote, all bloated out. We never got along well after he got back. 
And all of a sudden, Steve was getting all these gifts. He was getting all this clothing, getting all this attention. I guess I was jealous. I'm sure I was. I got put on the back burner, you might say. Now, Stephen, he continued to be followed by the press even as he grew older. Everything he did was a media event. When he went back to school, when he dropped out of school, when he testified in court, when he ran up over $1,000 in traffic fines, and when he worked this off by raking leaves for Merced County, and finally, when he married his wife, Jody. Now, Jody and Stephen, over time, had two children, a daughter and a son. Stephen, however, uh, would treat his own children uh, quite differently than other parents. And, you know, this is perfectly understandable. According to Stephen, quote, I see people doing things that I would never do with my kids, like letting them play outside by themselves. I keep a close eye on them. And when they get older, I'm going to teach them how to protect themselves because parents can't always be there. Now, Timmy... You know, he was five when he was taken, and two weeks later, Stephen had, you know, essentially rescued him. Uh, As Timmy grew up, his mom had said, quote, I suspect that I was more traumatized by the incident than Timmy was. You know, thanks to Stephen, uh, Timmy was freed before he was sexually abused. Really, I don't think Tim remembers much about the kidnapping, but I remember it all too well. I know how close I came to losing my Timmy forever. Now, finally, in 1981, Kenneth goes on trial. But amazingly, it's not for sexual abuse, but for kidnapping Stephen and Timmy. For this, he received seven years in prison and served five of them. Edward Murphy, who had originally helped to abduct Stephen was sentenced to five years and paroled after two. Sean, who had helped abduct Timmy, remember he was underage at the time, he was sentenced to a juvenile work camp. Now, years later, in 1989, um, Stephen had taken off on uh, his motorcycle that he had purchased with the money that he received from proceeds for selling the rights to his story. Uh, He did not put on a helmet, and as he was driving, his motorcycle collided with a car pulling out of a worker's center in Merced. Stephen was pronounced dead at the scene. He was only 24. Stephen's older brother, Carrie, at the time that this happened, was living with his uncle, Jerry Stainer, when Stephen had his motorcycle accident. Now, Carrie, according to friends, was devastated. A year later, in 1990, Jerry, Stephen and Carrie's uncle, whom Carrie was living with at the time that Stephen died in the accident, Jerry was found dead in his house, a shotgun wound to the chest. Now, police did question Carrie about it, but Carrie had an alibi. He said that he'd been at work when it happened, so he was not considered a suspect. Carrie, however, did say that there was a vagrant hanging around the house recently, but this person was never found. And to this day, the murder of Jerry remains unsolved. In 1991, a year after Jerry was found dead in the house, Carrie begins medication 
because he is found to have obsessive compulsive disorder. But he decides on his own to stop taking it because it made him tired, uh, gave him dry mouth, and according to him, rendered him impotent. Now, six weeks after going off the drug, he tried to kill himself by turning on his car in a closed garage. A few years later, Carrie himself went to the hospital emergency room because he began to have visions of killing his boss. A year later, Carrie was found by a co-worker hitting his fist against a piece of wood and bleeding while he was at work. According to the friend, quote, he said he felt like he was having a breakdown and said he was all nervous and he didn't know why. He said he felt like getting in his truck, driving into the office and killing everyone in there and torching the place. Carrie's boss then drove him to a psychiatric center where Carrie did speak with a therapist. He never did go back to that particular job. Now, the clinic where he went to receive treatment only offered group therapy, but Carrie wanted one-on-one treatment. He really felt he needed it. He said he had started to hear voices in his head. When the clinic couldn't give Carrie what he wanted, he just up and left. Now, not long after this incident, uh, Carrie, he had to find a new job. He had been hired as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Portal, California. And this is just outside the entrance to Yosemite National Park. Now, even though wintertime at Yosemite, it's not a busy time, uh, but that didn't matter to a group of three women. It was Carol's son, uh, her daughter, Julie, and Julie's friend, Sylvania. In February, they decided to take a trip to Yosemite and they ended up staying at the Cedar Lodge. Now, after they had dinner and they'd gone back to their room at around 11 o'clock, there was a knock on the door. And Carol, being concerned because Carol uh, is with two younger girls and these are teenagers, she didn't want to open the door. So she didn't. She just spoke through it. And outside the door was Carrie, who had a toolbox with him. And he said that there was a leak in the room above him, above them. And he needed to go check and see whether it was coming through the ceiling into their room. And Carol, not wanting to open up the door, said, hey, she's going to go check. And so she went into the bathroom. And when she didn't find anything, she came back and again told Carrie through the door, hey, there's nothing wrong. I don't see any leaks. Don't worry about it. We're good. Carrie kept persisting. And finally, Carol let him in the room. Now, Carrie spoke with Carol for a little bit, and then he headed to the bathroom where Carol could hear him working. After a short amount of time had gone by, Carrie walked out of the bathroom holding a gun. He told the three that he was only there to rob them. He grabbed his toolbox, which contained some duct tape and some rope, and he bound and gagged all of them. He then put the teenagers, Julie, who was 15, and Sylvania, who was 16, in the bathroom and locked them inside. He then went back to Carol with a rope in hand. He strangled Carol, found her car keys, and then took Carol's body outside, where he then put her into the trunk of her rental car. Later, 
Carrie would say, quote, I didn't realize how hard it is to strangle a person. It's not easy. So after Carrie had put Carol into the back of the rental car, he went back inside to the girls. He grabbed Sylvania and took her out of the bathroom, where he then assaulted her and then strangled her. When he had finished, he took her body out to the rental car and dumped her in the trunk alongside Carol. Julie was the only one left. After assaulting Julie numerous times, about four o'clock in the morning, Carrie decided to take her out of the room and put her in the car. Now, Julie is still alive at this point, and Carrie puts her in the passenger seat, and she's still taped up and gagged. At this point, Julie had no idea that her mom and Sylvania were in the trunk of the car. As they drove along, Carrie removed the gag from Julie's mouth and he tried to make small talk with her. Uh, Carrie ended up driving to a place called Lake Don Pedro, where he then parked the car and carried Julie to a spot that overlooked the water. Later, uh, Carrie would say that he had quickly grown attached to the girl and that he wished he could keep her. Again, he sexually assaulted Julie, told her he loved her, and then killed her by slitting her throat to the point where she was nearly decapitated. Instead of placing her in the trunk, however, he left her body at the location where she had been killed, but he hid her in some nearby brush. Carrie then drove the car to a well-hidden location, and then he walked to a nearby town where he called a cab to take him back to the lodge. Now, Carol, Julie, and Sylvania, they were reported missing not long after they had been abducted, and investigators headed to the Cedar Lodge Motel where the three had been staying. Their hotel room did show signs of struggle, and it was apparent that they had been abducted. FBI agents, National Park Rangers, and California Highway Patrol officers searched Yosemite with dogs and helicopters, Uh, They also questioned all of the employees of Cedar Lodge, including Carrie Stainer. Now, Carrie, as it turns out, even took the FBI from room to room so that they could gather fiber samples. After Carrie was questioned, he was released and authorities didn't consider him a suspect at all. Now, after two days, Carrie decided that he wanted to go back to the car. So Carrie went back to the car where the car was hidden and with him, he brought along a can of gasoline. After dumping the gasoline all over the vehicle, he set it on fire and left. It wasn't until March, nearly two months later, that a hiker found their burned out car on this remote road. And it was about a hundred miles away from the lodge. The car obviously turned out to be Carol's rental car, and in the trunk, they found Carol and Sylvania, but not Julie. Now, shortly after the news broke that this burnt-out car had been located, the FBI received an anonymous tip that contained a map of where they could find Julie's body, and the map was correct. They did find Julie's body. Additionally, After the burned out vehicle was located, uh, police in nearby Modesto had a run-in with two ex-convicts. Both of these men, they were being held in the Modesto jail 
and FBI agents had told reporters that the two men had been linked to the murders, and they had been linked through fibers that had been analyzed at the FBI labs in Washington. But furthermore, they had also been linked because of statements that one of them had made. The FBI then announced, quote, We have all the main players in jail, but we are in no rush to charge them. There was no explanation as to why, but this is what they said. Carrie was never, ever on the radar. Now, later on in July of that year, the medical director of Yosemite National Park, he receives a call and he is asked if he would be willing to join a search for a missing person. Now, this wasn't unusual because July was the height of tourist season and it wasn't odd that some hikers may have gotten lost. He later discovered that the person that they were looking for wasn't a visiting hiker, but a co-worker whose name was Joy Armstrong, who worked at Yosemite as a naturalist. She had been reported missing by some friends because she had planned to meet up with them in Sausalito, California for the weekend, but she never showed up and her friends were worried about her. Now, all of the park employees, if you work at Yosemite, evidently have their own cabins and they're all located at the bottom of an unmarked road in Yosemite. In total, there are about 30 cabins and Joy, along with two others, lived in one of the cabins, which actually happened to be towards the very tail end of of the whole cabin row. When the medical director showed up uh, to the cabins, uh, yellow police tape surrounded Joy's cabin and her white pickup was still parked in the driveway with all of her luggage still inside. As the group began to search for Joy, they noticed that parts of the grassy area near her cabin had been trampled and that there were footprints in the dirt. One of the searchers had yelled out about something that was glinting in the distance. And as they got closer, they realized that it was a key ring, but not far from the key ring lay Joy in a white t-shirt and jeans. Her head had been removed from her body. Now, since the methods of all of the killings were different, the killings of Carol and Sylvania and Julie, uh, and now Joy, they weren't at first linked together because they felt that a decapitation was well beyond the other two types of crimes. You know, although one could argue that the crimes were escalating in nature. You know, it's not a far cry from strangling to throat cutting slash near decapitation to then full decapitation, right? One thing was different though about Joy's murder. Uh, This time though, they had a clue. A park employee had noticed something, a blue and white vehicle that had been parked close to Joy's cabin the night of her death. So police then put out a bolo, a be on the lookout for this this vehicle. A few days later, two park rangers spotted a vehicle that matched this description, and it happened to be parked along Merced River Canyon. As the officers walked down to the water, they found a man who was lying in the nude and smoking a joint. The man told them who he was. It was Kerry Stainer, and he was the handyman at the Cedar Lodge. The rangers took his marijuana and let him go. The FBI, however, compared the tire tracks of Carrie's car 
to those found at Joy's crime scene, and they found a perfect match. So now they're on the hunt to arrest Carrie, and they finally locate Carrie at a restaurant in a nudist colony and took him into custody. Upon booking him on suspicion of murder, Carrie shockingly confessed to the murder of Joy. He then further went on to admit that he was the one who had abducted and murdered Carol, Sylvania, and Julie. Not only that, he further told them that he was also the one who had sent the anonymous map to the FBI. Carrie claimed that he had fantasized about murdering women ever since he was seven years old, well, well before the abduction of his brother, Stephen. He had been shopping with his mom one time when he had a vision in his head about opening fire on the cashiers, killing all of them. He also said that he was molested when he was 11 by his uncle, Jerry. Now, this was later mentioned by Carrie's dad, who said that, yes, Carrie had been molested at 11 by an uncle, but not Uncle Jerry. Now, if you remember, this is the same uncle that Carrie had lived with when Stephen had died in the motorcycle accident and whose case has never been solved. However, and this is pure speculation on my part, Carrie was 29 at the time of Jerry's murder. Uh, But again, to date, Jerry's murder has not been solved. Carrie, as he's talking to police, uh, further said that he truly felt he could not stop his compulsion to kill. He then explained how he had abducted Joy. He said that an early evening, he had driven down to her cabin. Now, Joy was nervous. Uh, She had known full well what had happened to the three women, Uh, in February, and at that very moment when he's driving down there, she is totally alone at this cabin. She had just packed for her trip, and she was getting ready to take off. Now, Carrie, he had some small talk with Joy, and it didn't take him long to realize that she was, in fact, alone. He then pulled a gun on her and ordered her into her cabin, where he then bound and gagged her, just like he had done with Carol, Sylvania, and Julie. He then forced Joy outside into his car, and Carrie started driving up the road. Joy, however, had other plans. She was able to get the passenger door open and escape. She started to run into the woods and towards a cabin where she knew that her friends were at. Carrie stopped the car and ran after her, catching up with her not long after she had escaped. He grabbed her, put a knife through her throat, and then continued to work at her neck until she was fully decapitated. He then tossed her body in one area and threw her head in another direction. After his initial court appearance, uh, where he pled not guilty, Carrie was placed in solitary confinement in a Fresno County jail. He had spoken with a television reporter about his case and had said that he wanted a bidding war for a movie of the week about his crimes. Now, if you remember, his brother Stephen, after he had returned home, also had a movie of the week done about him, which earned him quite a bit of money. Later on, Carrie sent a letter from jail to a local newspaper that said, 
quote, I am truly very sorry for the pain that he had caused and he wanted to sell the rights to his story to Hollywood so that he could compensate the families of the victims. Carrie was found guilty after trial and he was sentenced to death. He currently remains on death row in San Quentin and is 61 years old. Now, Carrie's parents are not convinced that he actually committed the crimes. So what happened to Kenneth, the man who took Stephen? I mean, he had gone to jail, but then he had been released, right? Well, in January of 2003, Kenneth at that time was 71 years old. Now, at some point, he had suffered a stroke and it was so severe that he required 24-hour nursing care. One day, his caregiver's sister, Diane, she had come over and Kenneth started talking with her and offered her $500 to buy him a four-year-old boy. Now, Diane, she knew about Kenneth's past. And so what she did is she ended up contacting the police. Now, instead of the police just heading over to question him, they asked Diane if she would be willing to set up a sting operation to catch Kenneth in the act. Diane agreed, and shortly afterwards, she sat down with Kenneth to work out the details. Kenneth paid Diane $100 for a birth certificate and would give Diane the remainder remainder of the money, $400, when he received the child. They had set a date of January 3rd, 2003, for this child to be delivered. That same day, Kenneth was arrested and Kenneth told the authorities that all he simply wanted was a family. A year later, Kenneth was convicted on the charges of attempting to purchase a child and attempted child molestation. Now, even though no child had been targeted, the prosecution was able to argue that the items that they found in Kenneth's home aids for use in intimacy and pornography, along with Diane's testimony, proved that Kenneth's intentions were criminal in nature. He was then sentenced to 25 years to life. Now, Kenneth remained in jail until he died of natural causes at the age of 76 in January of 2008. Uh, Mike Eccles, the author of the uh, bestseller, the bestselling book, I Know My First Name is is Stephen, actually died in Monterey County Jail in 2003, uh, where he was incarcerated for trespassing and related charges. I just thought that was a little interesting. Now, personally, I can't even begin to imagine what this family had to endure. You know, not only were they dealing with a child who had a medical and, as it turns out, a psychological issue, another child was abducted and eventually came home, which was great, but he came home a completely different person and a family member had been murdered. It's hard to say one way or another if one thing hadn't happened, then another thing wouldn't have happened. So for instance, if would Carrie's behavior have been the same or different if Stephen hadn't been abducted? You know, you could argue that with the abduction, The parents put their heart and souls into the search for Stephen, and some of the other children may have gone by the wayside. You know, I'm not blaming them by any means. You know, no one 
can't ever say what you would do or not do in a situation like that until you've walked in their shoes. But did the return of Stephen set off Carrie? Did the murder of his uncle trigger something in him? Was his uncle his first murder? Again, this is all pure speculation, but they're definitely questions that end up running through my mind. It's just a very, you know, intriguing, you know. Um, I only hope that his parents have found some small kind of peace. I wouldn't wish what happened to them on anyone. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you all. Uh, Please don't hesitate to hit me up if there's a story you'd like to hear about. And also, please consider giving this episode a like slash and or a comment. Um, Every little bit helps to get the word out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much.